Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. Back in May, the government injected another $300 million in New Zealand Green Investment Finance, or NZGIF as it's known, taking the Green Bank's investment pool to around about $700 million. Started in 2019, the bank has committed about $300 million in 16 transactions to date, and that's an investments and a lending, I think, is is it? It lending? includes lending, lending, for sure. Okay, great. Mean, yes. All right. Well, what impact is that having on emissions reduction? And actually, given the scale of climate change, why is it such a small amount of money? And why is it taking so long, Jason, to spend it? We will get to that. <laughs> um, and perhaps a question Jason can't answer is, will the bank survive a potential change of government? Well, to answer these questions, I'm joined by the Chief Investment Officer, Jason Petro. Indeed. Thanks for having me. Um, Jason, um, welcome to the show. You seem to have degrees from everywhere, from Berkeley, Yale and NYU. That's quite a few degrees. Um, what brings you down under? <laughs> uh, I was uh, recruited, fortunately, um, for uh, the role. Um, the background is that I've been doing climate finance work in a number of forms in uh, brokerage and banking and principal investment for my career. Mm. Uh, Merrill Lynch. Yep. Environmental Defense Fund. Yep. That too. Macquarie's Biocarbon Group. I don't know anything about that, but it sounds impressive. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that's uh, that was a direct investment entity that was uh, formed as part of Macquarie Global Investments, oh, about a decade or so ago. Uh, and yeah, I helped them with that business for some years. So this career that you've formed, in some ways it's kind of the new career, isn't it? This merger of climate tech, climate investment, biodiversity and capital markets coming together. Is, would you say that that's a new discipline, a new field? Uh, what I would say is that it's a discipline, a field that has been growing for some years now and certainly one that I and I'd like to think lots of others will think um, will be a, a, a major focus for work in the future, yes. Mm. And why New Zealand? I mean, it sounds like you could have worked in many places, but you've come to God's own. Why is that? Well, it's a lovely place to live and work, don't you think? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was an interesting opportunity. Um, and uh, actually, I was quite taken with um, the way this organization was established. So I have a bit of experience not only in these markets and climate finance in general, but with the sort of institutions that have done this work um, to date. And um, in their work in setting up this institution, um, the the folks at Treasury who did so uh, did quite a good job, in my view, of getting out there and speaking to other green banks, which have been sovereign and sub-sovereign entities, uh, and talking to them about, well, you know, what is the scope of your mandate? What do you focus on? Why? Mm -hmm. What do you wish you could do uh, more or less different? That sort of thing. I thought that was quite uh, smart. And what they did is they established an organization that uh, has a much uh, smarter mandate um, and I'll get to why that is in a moment, then at least the way green banks were originally set up, which um, was for quite uh, narrow reasons, if you will, often solely focusing on providing some forms of debt to large renewable generation projects. So in contrast, as you may be aware, NZGIF is able to focus on all manner of investment structures, so corporate equity, project finance, mm. senior and sub-debt, uh, financial products, guarantees, et cetera. Uh, in addition to that, we're able to focus on virtually every sector that has an emissions footprint for New Zealand. So that combination of 
of structural ability, sectoral ability is pretty interesting in my view. It's, right. And, was attractive and, and unique? Or, or, uh, or, or at least, yeah, yeah. Um, I wouldn't say that quite because some other uh, green banks um, have since, from their earliest days, broadened their mandate. So, for example, the CEFC, sort of our sister organization ac across the water here, has now actually quite a broad mandate um, and does things that, for example, we don't do, at least not yet. Uh, for example, they've even got public equities products, that sort of thing at hmm. this point. Hmm. Well, you've invested in, officially, at least 16 companies, or not companies, you've made 16 investments or That's placements. Right. Um, tell us about those. Can you give us some examples? I can. So um, to date, uh, especially, um, I would point out um, for those investments which haven't yet uh, been publicly announced, we have been fortunate in which we've been able to touch on all of our sectors of interest, and we certainly continue, uh, will continue to do so moving forward. Uh, and we've focused on quite a lot in terms of the scope of the investment structures, as I mentioned, we can do. So, for example, we've done corporate equity in investments. We've done senior debt. We've done sub-debt. We've been working on uh, financial product development. We've done guarantees. Uh, and as mentioned, we've done uh, all a bit in all of the sectors of, of interest except um, waste and plastics, which we haven't uh, done an, uh, uh, an investment in yet. It's a difficult sector to address. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a couple of for instances, as sure. the Americans say? <laughs> sure. Uh, so we've had quite a lot of success today, uh, especially I would say in the distributed energy and transport sectors. The reason for that is because, as you may be aware, what we call the investability of different sectors is actually quite different. I think a lot of people don't appreciate that. What I mean by that is that uh, the sorts of business models and technologies that are investable today, because um, to be clear, we're a commercial investor, um, uh, those characteristics are different in different sectors. So the easiest example, I suppose, is that uh, in New Zealand, the agriculture sector, as you know, is so important. Um, mm -hmm. But some of the solutions, in fact, most of the solutions that are available to address uh, dairy emission uh, dairy emissions uh, aren't quite technologically mature yet. Uh -huh. So you see, um, for commercial investors like us, um, we wouldn't normally get behind what we would consider an R&D project, although we do have one investment in that particular subsector to date. Um, whereas in, for example, the distributed energy and transport sectors, solutions are much more mature. So think of, for example, solar, uh, you know, PVC solar, or think uh, electric vehicles. So we've done uh, a number of transactions in those particular sectors because of the investability mm -hmm. and because of the um, the breadth of the market, because of team expertise that's developed due to the work that we've done in it, et cetera. All right. Solar Zero being an example, right? Yeah, what, yeah. what did you do with Solar Zero? Yeah, we've done a few things with them to date. Um, I think most notably, we alongside Westpac have been debt providers to uh, Solar Zero's work in uh, offering solar as a service to residential customers. Mm -hmm. They have more than 10,000 such customers in uh, New Zealand to date. Uh, we also have a guarantee product uh, with them. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we do such things. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we've done a little bit of work with them. What's the problem that you're addressing? Because if you're at the commercial end of the market <clears> and <throat> banks and lending institutions are starting to kind of wake up to the opportunity in climate tech and clean mm. tech, uh, what is the failure there that requires a government institution? Yeah, it's a really important point. Uh, it gets to, you know, our reason for being, if you will, namely um, – 
there's a general market failure for climate finance, particularly, of course, um, with a public policy goal like we have in New Zealand of, you know, attaining net zero status by 2050. Mm. Uh, what I mean by that is that uh, there's certainly not enough investment activity um, today to uh, get the capital flowing across sectors, across companies, et cetera, in order to achieve such a policy goal. Mm -hmm. uh, the reasons for that are probably not well understood, uh, I would say, because um, yeah, we've gotten that question before. Well, you know, if the opportunities are out there, if they're commercial, then why aren't they being done anyway? And the answer is that's not really quite how investment works for a couple of uh, simple reasons and, and some more subtle. What I mean by that is um, investors typically do stuff that they already understand. Uh, especially institutional investors, I would say. So uh, the bigger the investor, the more likely it is often, but for small pots of money, that they're likely to do things that they've done before, they're understood structures, mm -hmm. long data sets of performance, this sort of thing. Um, that's where investment dollars typically flow, right? What they're used to. Um, in contrast, as you can imagine, by definition, so many climate solutions, business models, technologies are relatively new. So that's the sort of thing that is often difficult for investors to get their heads around. So it requires a specialist who understands these business models, these markets, the technologies, the policy environment, even the engineering, this sort of thing, mm -hmm. in order to drive capital, not only our own, um, but to drive co-investment capital into such opportunities. So the co-investment one is quite important, isn't it? So it in is. some ways you provide the confidence that the private sector then can mm. uh, build on. So in, in some ways, de-risking that first tranche of investment, is that kind of your role, like a catalyst? Yeah, uh, in some cases, uh, quite explicitly uh, de-risking, but more broadly, uh, the initial point you made is really quite important. So uh, in addition to being a direct investor, um, our interest is in driving further capital into not only our opportunities, but the broader market, if you will. So uh, we have what we like to call our market leadership and demonstration objective in addition to you know, our, our core investment objectives. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say that our market leadership and demonstration alongside the direct investment, alongside driving further capital, and of course the you know, decarbonization benefit is core to our mission. I think a lot of people probably don't see that. They don't see that or they do see that? Uh, what I mean is that they don't appreciate that that's core to our mission right. as much, but it, it truly is. Yeah. yeah, It's open to criticism in the sense of uh, it's possible that the private sector may have invested without you. It's a counterfactual. You don't know it until <laughs> – yeah. You know, until you face that reality, how mm. do you know? How do you make a decision as an investment officer mm. that there is a genuine need for green investment finance, as opposed to leaving it to the market? Sure. So, first of all, I would say that we see ourselves very much as an important part of the market rather than separate from it. Um, again, um, I think the way to think about it is that there is quite plainly a general market failure. To, uh, to drive capital into decarbonization opportunities across sectors, across businesses, across technologies. So uh, that's uh, plainly evident and, uh, and uh, to date, um, certainly our stakeholders have agreed and we haven't had any lack of opportunities. Uh, were you involved in the Glenbrook steel mill deal? No, 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 we were not involved in that. So that's an example, isn't it, where it's open to to debate whether that's, in fact, corporate welfare, mm. given that that organisation 
should, and then there's there's the kind of that's some there's a moral aspect to that, which sure. perhaps doesn't work in a corporate setting. But mm. it's so obvious that the future is going to be electric for boilers for industrial heat, and why <clears throat> the market can't and won't solve that and requires mm. the government to step in. Is there a kind of moral hazard aspect to what you're doing of um, actually lining the pockets of people that should know better and should do better? <laughs> no. Well, as mentioned, we weren't involved in that um, particular opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wouldn't comment on, on the, the merits of it one way or another. But Well, uh, Centreport would be an example, right? And you, sure. So you, you helped, you're helping electrify Centreport, which is yeah. fantastic. Yes. Why aren't they just doing that as – Mm. You know, they've got a fiduciary responsibility. They've got a statutory mm. responsibility. Why, yeah. why are corporate leaders having to turn to a government institution to help them do what actually, in every sense, is the right thing to do? Well, yeah, that, that's a particularly interesting one. In fact, uh, that was a deal we did a few years ago now. Uh, we're really uh, happy about that, and we've been uh, delighted to work with Centerport. Um, that's a case where, as you can imagine, um, coming off of the earthquake and so much of the port regeneration work they had to do, mm-hmm. um, they still um, had a forward-looking um, uh, uh, strategy, if you will, for how decarbonization would be an increasingly important part of uh, port activities moving forward. And yet they had so much capital need as part of, for example, regeneration, as uh, mentioned, that they still wanted to be able to pursue some of those decarbonization initiatives. And we were able to work with them to set up what's essentially a a low-carbon credit facility in which they use that for some of the decarbonization Mm -hmm. initiatives, freeing up some of their other capital um, for, uh, you know, core core, uh, sorry, uh, core uh, port. Um, CapEx and, and other projects. And that's an example of the kind of flexibility you're talking about. You don't that's have right. a, a one-size-fits-all product. You can actually yeah. flex to see wherever the, the need is. That's right. And that, again, is a really important um, part of our work that uh, I have tried to instill into our DNA, if you will, <laughs> into the investment team. Namely, it's not like we have off-the-shelf vanilla you know, products like you would get, say, a, a mortgage from your bank. We really like to work with our counterparties to uh, think about, well, what's the solution here from a financing point of view? It may be exactly what the counterparty has in mind, or it may be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And we're able to offer terms, et cetera, that commercial banks often wouldn't, which is another thing we're able to do. So, for example, uh, we're able to lend on a long-term basis. We're able to look at uh, risk positions in, uh, in our, the investment structures that mm-hmm. some other investors, even private equity and private debt providers, aren't able to consider um, because of their own uh, mandate restrictions, their own preferences for their investment work. So we're able to do those things, and we like to work with counterparties to develop those solutions. When I was uh, casting about for points of view on the the fund and how it's going, Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the criticisms uh, was – the size of the climate challenge is so great, the, yes. the hurdle that has to be overcome to tip industries into a, mm. into a lower carbon future. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, the size of the challenge, the size of the hurdle, yes. and the amount of money that you've got to play with is so little yeah. in comparison. Yeah. Um, do you have a point of view about how much is required for it to actually be catalytic? 
Yeah, I do. Um, and first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, not just in New Zealand, but of course, globally, mm. the need is much greater than, you know, the capital flowing to date, which, again, get, gets back to that uh, original point we were talking about around, you know, what's the reason for being, what's the market failure, if you mm. will. Um, but to your point, more specifically, that's one of the reasons, as you could imagine, that co-investment is such an important part of the work that we do. Again, we we seek to not only deploy our own capital, but to bring others alongside us. In fact, a greater amount of uh, additional capital all, alongside our own. In addition, as you can imagine, you know, we're an ambitious organization. We plan on growing, expanding the work that we do and expanding our capital base ourselves moving forward. Uh, you know, we'll never be able to be the sole uh, solution, of course, um, mm. in any particular market, but um, we obviously would like to be able to do our part to build the overall market, to drive our own capital, build that amount, and again, drive that additional Where would capital. that additional capital come from? Could you raise it outside of government? Certainly, yeah, yeah. Um, so as you may know, we're a Schedule for a firm under the Public Finance Act, and we have the ability to, for example, um, manage uh, uh, essentially outside money via SPVs and other structures. What's an SPV? Sorry, a special purpose vehicle, you know, a, 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 a hold co or, or operating company um, that is set up and uh, into which we can put outside capital. We're also able uh, to bring on a balance sheet capital um, debt. A, a which capital? Balance sheet capital. Oh, okay. So we yeah. could, for example, raise debt ourselves as a corporate. We could mm -hmm. issue... Uh, bonds, notes, et cetera, if we chose to. We could even bring on uh, corporate equity under the terms of our constitution, although we haven't contemplated that sort of approach to date. Um, just explain how that could work in terms of raising capital. Would mm. you use the existing investments that you've got as kind of your balance sheet mm -hmm. that you could borrow against? Or you know, just explain to me how you could bring in outside capital. Uh, there are lots of ways, and, and that's, uh, of course, always a focus for us. Um, but you're right. Uh, uh, to the example you intimated, um, we have several initiatives at the moment to use what we would call perhaps seed assets, assets that are in our portfolio today uh -huh. as uh, you know seeds into entities in which we can bring in uh, outside capital, thereby demonstrating, for example, hey, there's an opportunity, be it in energy, in transport, in grid infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. Here are some examples. Here are some seeds for an opportunity and use that as an uh, investment opportunity for outside capital. Yes, we're doing that. Oh, that's interesting. So that would look something like, I, I don't know, would you issue like a, a transport fund or, or something that then you would invite people to join you in that fund? Exactly right. In fact, we're working on a, a product much like that uh, in the distributed energy sector right now that huh. we, we okay. hope to complete in the next a period of time. Right, okay. Yes. And that goes again to this flexibility you've talked about, about yeah. the freedom to operate like a really commercial entity um, yes. that, be beyond the restrictions of, say, a government department. That's right. So, uh, yeah, uh, to that language, we, we obviously uh, consider ourselves um, a fully commercial actor in the market. How much... The impossible question, sure. <laughs> how much money do you need to make the kind of difference that needs to be made? Oh, well, if you look at the need, you know, for New Zealand, the answer is many billions, isn't it? So, um, you know, we are uh, the size of an organization we are today, and we've been um, successful, fortunately, in um, deploying our own capital and to driving uh, outside capital into our current opportunities. But yeah, you know, 
a few years time, I'd love to be sitting in this chair again and telling you that we're a multi-billion dollar organization that is uh, building the market more broadly and touching all of our sectors of interest more broadly and doing mm. more and more work. That's definitely um, the vision we have for the organization. The counter to saying that the hurdles are so great is, well, the corollary, which is such a hard word to say, isn't it? easier <laughs> to spell than say, sure. um, is the is that for every hurdle that's over, got to be overcome, there's an opportunity, right? That's right. So, so rather than let's talking about constraint, let's talk about the size and the scale of the opportunity. What yeah. what could it look like if there was an active investor base in climate tech and climate finance? Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. By the way, I think when the whole idea of climate as an investment sector developed much of the focus and much of the investment dollars that I'm speaking globally at the moment was on um, climate as a risk and climate as perhaps a screen uh, in for institutional investors in, mm -hmm. in their typical work. But you're absolutely right. The way I've seen it uh, really throughout my career and the way others uh, have seen it more and more has been uh, climate is, of course, the great investment trend of, of the coming period, if you will, in society. So I think more people will see it that way, and that's certainly um, the way we and our team like to look at it. Does that mean that uh, eventually there won't be a role for you, as not you individually, but as an organisation, that mm. NZGIF has a limited life? I don't think so. I've heard people say that, but um, first of all, I would say that the, um, there will be a need for climate-focused investment and an opportunity for climate-focused investment well beyond the lifetimes of our children. Mm. So um, uh, from a practical point of view, I don't, I don't think that's really the case. If you're saying, well, will there be a time when it will be a public policy goal to have an institution like ours? Perhaps. But yeah, that's not in the planable horizon. Am I right in thinking that your investments are focused on mitigation, not on yes, adaptation. That's correct. So it's all about reductions. And yes. how do you measure that and how do you know when you've been successful? Yeah, so uh, we everything we do has to have a decarbonization benefit for NZ. Uh, so we um, typically what we do is we have an ex-ante assessment as part of our normal investment assessment process. What does that mean? What that means is when we're going through the process of uh, deciding – well, this is something that we want to do or not do, we will do an assessment as well of what the expected uh, decarbonization benefit is and a CO2 uh -huh. equivalent metric ton basis is right. the way it's done. Yeah, great. Uh, and then we do require uh, reporting from our investees as to how those uh, actual um, uh, greenhouse gas benefits mm -hmm. uh, play out over time. Do you have some sort of independent assessment um, outside of your own investment um Guys, who's able to, to provide that mm. um, veracity mm. that there is actually emissions reductions happening? We don't um, pursue what it sounds like you're talking about would be uh, third-party verification like is done, for example, in carbon markets, like right here uh, uh, under the NZETS. Mm. So that's not the approach um, that we take. Like other green banks, we do that sort of estimation and reporting under established measurement methodologies, but not under a sort of verification regime like you're mm -hmm. speaking about. That's the sort of thing that's appropriate for you know carbon credit systems under ETSs, yeah. that sort of thing. The um, Climate Invest uh, Venture Capital Fund that I, I'm involved in, yes. um, we, we have uh, an emissions uh, reduction assessment sure. committee, you know, that's outside of our investment team. And they've mm. they've got the um, 
veto power, actually, to be able to say, uh, sounds like a great investment, it's not going to make enough difference. Great. Uh, which, which sounds like it, but you don't have that. So uh, how, how do we know that th- yeah. there is actually going to be emissions reductions in the investments yeah. you make? So we do have a function like that. It's internal, like a lot of other green banks. And all of our, the emissions benefit of our work is reported as part of our normal annual reporting, like our investments. Is there a number that you can, um, I think I've, I sort of might have read it in, um, in Radio New Zealand, actually. I think they've said 700, uh, 710,000 tonnes of CO2 equivalent in yes. four years, five years? Yep, yep. Um, that's uh, the estimated uh, benefit to date. And as you can imagine, um, all of our, or many of our investments are longer term, so there will be continuing benefit moving forward. And then, of course, as we do more and drive more capital into such opportunities, there will be even more. Yeah. Tell us about your own motivations for doing this. What, how, what was your journey? When did you be, begin to be interested in climate finance? Oh, quite early. Uh, I was one of those people that uh, was interested in from a scientific, from a social, uh, from a public policy, uh, from a financial point of view in climate issues from a very early time. So, you know, as a university student and uh, in those days, uh, for people interested in such things, there were there was generally one of just a few tracks. So people focused on public policy, or they focused on law, or they focused on business. Uh, and I was uh, a bit interested in all of them, mm-hmm. but ultimately my personal assessment was that in order to have impact, while they're all important, um, I really um, saw and believe that driving capital and essentially effectuating the turnover of capital stock um, for a decarbonization benefit was the bit that I was interested in from an impact point of view. Mm. So um, uh, it's been a nice fit, as you can imagine, with NZ Gift because um, that's you know the reason for being for the organization, as mentioned. Um, there's the other side of um, c- climate capital, which is uh, you know punishing, so it's excluding companies sure. in, in your portfolio. Um, that could have also been a, a trajectory for you going into funds management and doing screening or yep. um, or being on the activist side. Was that a possibility for you? Not so much. Uh, yeah, there's a role, of course, in the market. Um, one of the things that I like to comment uh, to folks on is you know, when people ask me, well, you know, what's the what's the solution, you know, for the climate problem? The answer is all of the above. <laughs> uh, so, yes, there's uh, a need uh, for institutional investors who, you know, manage, of course, the largest pools of capital, which are typically placed in public uh, equities and bonds to have those sorts of um, screening functions. That's not the sort of thing I'm interested in. I find the... Um, the uniqueness, the breadth, uh, the novelty, and the the um, the work in the weeds of, of direct investment and investment banking work and driving capital is what's of interest to me. Mm. Are we moving fast enough? I mean, as a global <laughs> community, there there's still billions and billions being tipped into fossil fuel based activities, even sure. fossil fuel extraction. Yes. I guess there's two questions in here. You know, are, are we moving fast enough, and and what is going to accelerate the decarbonisation? Yeah, um, the answer uh, again, taking a step back, like I like I like to say, um, the solution is all of the above. Um, we're certainly not moving fast enough. If you're a, act, asking at a societal level, at a global level, mm. certainly not. 
Um, so that's the reason that, um, you know, NZGIF was set up to, you know, cut the Gordian knot, if you will, mm-hmm. on that market failure for New Zealand specifically in terms of driving finance for um, climate solutions and for driving, you know, capital stock turnover, if you will. Mm. Some ways, the you know, the, you're on the positive side of the mm. ledger of mm. uh, you know investing in good things, trying to drive that forward. Mm. Um, to what extent do we also need the negative side of the ledger of the naming and shaming of um, legislation that actually puts a decent carbon price, puts a decent price on polluting mm. um, our environment? Um, it, it seems to me like you need both, right? Um. Well, gosh, uh, first of all, I should say a bit outside the remit of events, I'd give that bit. But <laughs> yeah. if you'd like me to comment on a personal basis, uh, naming and shaming is an expression that's often associated with, you know, activist work. Um, part of the ecosystem, perhaps. Um, what you had also mentioned is taxation. And, and again, what I would uh, say is that surely part of the overall toolbox as a society, out of, um, you know, a part of the overall uh, solution set is um, appropriate uh, uh, tax regimes as well f- as part of climate policy, but mm. again, outside of the remit of NZGIF. Yeah, sure. Um, mm. I'm trying to probe here for <laughs> interesting points of view, but sure. um, we'll, we'll stick to the script. So um, tell me about the future then of mm. GIF. You, we've, we've got an election coming up. Uh, mm. Nobody knows. It's a crystal, you know, we don't have mm. a, um, a crystal ball. How confident are you that, given a change of government, mm. uh, that the bank would survive and actually indeed flourish? Oh, confident. Um, so first of all, I'll say that uh, we're a proudly an apolitical organization, which is funny, I understand, given that you know we were established uh, for a public policy goal, um, but confident for a lot of reasons, uh, m- mainly um, in your scenario of a change in government. We'd like to think that uh, will be seen as a great solution for any uh, new government coming in. Um, from our point of view, accomplishing um, the the goal of uh, being part of the solution for the climate problem in New Zealand is something that, uh, fortunately, uh, every uh, party seems to recognize and, yeah. and prioritize in New Zealand. Mm. Um, in addition, being an organization that not just is a part of the solution there, but does so uh, in an effective way uh, is a part of it. And of course, perhaps most important in a way that isn't a cost to the crown, but actually makes money for the crown, we'd like to think is a very pr- attractive proposition indeed. Mm. Would an, anal- an analogy be something like Kiwi Bank, uh, where, which is, exists as an organization, yeah. um, was set up you know, by a left-wing government, but has continued, right? Sure. Mm. Could be. Yeah, I wouldn't draw a direct analogy, of course. But, uh, but again, to your point, um, the idea that we're accomplishing a really important um, uh, function for New Zealand and in a way that makes money for the crown seems like a, a fantastic thing to me, as you can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, Jason Patrick, it's been great talking to you and um, all the best uh, for your inv- – in, uh, actually, I need to ask, you yeah. don't have a CEO at the moment, is that right? We have an acting CEO at the moment. Right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And um, is that is that going to be you in the permanent seat? <laughs> I couldn't say. Uh, so there's a process that the board is undertaking uh, to to look for a new CE for that seat. So yeah, uh, stay tuned. Very diplomatic answer. Nice talking to you, Jason. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. If you like the show, please rate us as it helps others to find us. Ka kiti anō.